Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Wilich, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today. We're going to get into it right away because we have a fairly long interview that I want to uh, that I want you to see before we go into the other topics today. So bear with us. We are about to start that great interview. Bear with me one second. Let's get the other things fired up, and then we will be ready to go. Welcome aboard, Paul Fleming. Welcome aboard, Bruce Pillard, Mitch Rules, Hope Bleaker. Welcome aboard, Paul Fleming, Bridge MCP, AVQ. Love you all. Glad that you are here. We are going to get started. What is the show about today? Let's get busy with telling you about the show. Title of the show today, uh, Dr. Cynthia Miller-Idris Discusses Hate in the Homeland. State of Election 2020. Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris discusses hate in America and its implication. What's the state of the transition to a new president? Without further ado, let me go ahead and let me first check the emails to see. Pamela Mattox, welcome aboard. Let's get to Dr. Idris and then we'll take it on the other side. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Radamic. Berto Willis, your host. Uh, we're here with uh, Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. Uh, Dr. Idris is professor of sociology and education at the American University in Washington, D.C., where she directs the polarization and extreme, extremism research and innovation lab called Peril, great, great initials, in the Center of uh, University Excellence. She is previous author of the Extreme Gone Mainstream Commercialization and For Right Youth Culture in Germany and Blood and Culture youth right-wing extremism and belonging in contemporary Germany. Well, uh, have we brought Germany to America? Dr. <laughs> Miller Idris, welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, you just wrote a new book, Hate in the Homeland, the Global for Right. Uh, it's a silly question, given our times. Why did you write the book? It's not a silly question. It's a great question. I mean, and it's a great question, not just because of what's going on at the moment, but it evolved out of, you know, having finished that previous book that you just mentioned called The Extreme Gone Mainstream, which was really about what was happening in Germany and Europe and was based on almost 10 years of research, uh, including ethnography on the ground and a long project working with photographers, um, so an image database of how commercialization had, ins you know, how clothing had changed, style had changed, um, looking at protests across the country. And I wrote that, and as I turned it in, two months later, um, Charlottesville happened. And so, you know, here I was based in the U.S., and then you have this mainstreaming and normalization show up here, followed by several episodes of extreme violence globally and in the U.S., um, that introduced me to a lot of conversations in the US that I had not been a part of previously because I think people thought, even I myself thought I was primarily a scholar of sort of fringe subcultures in another country rather than an expert on what was happening in the US. And I think that seeing how the European changes in the European youth extremist scene had arrived in the US and what was happening here to kind of modernize the far right movement and white supremacist extremism, um, Mean, meant that I suddenly had an audience of people here who wanted to know um, about these kinds of things. So I was asked to, you know, testify before Congress and brief, you know, I mean, I'm suddenly in, in meetings with policymakers that I'd never been a part of before. And so I thought, 
there was a lot happening in those conversations that was missing some of what might be a more effective at addressing um, interventions and addressing far-right extremism even before it began, sort of at the very early intervention stage. And so I wrote the book both to explain to a broader American public what I thought was happening and also to try to change the agenda or set a new agenda for how we might intervene at earlier stages and understand where the mainstreaming is happening. Now look, for some time uh, in this country, uh, we have known that the, the far right, the terrorism in this country, more so than uh, Islamic or otherwise, was coming from that fringe. We knew it. It's not a new yeah. thing. It, well, we knew it before 2016. We knew it before yes. 2012. The FBI was all on it. They've had their in, they, they've had their infiltrators in these organizations. Why is it that it took um, it took the actual well, I'm, I don't even want to say the actual issue of violence because they have already brought down a building in Oklahoma. Why is it that we took so long to see this as a real problem in America? Yeah, I think well, I think there's a lot of reasons why. One of which is just you know how 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 hard it is for Americans to recognize extremist ideas if they don't come in a package that fits the idea that they have in their head of what a white explain that is that right? is so that is a very important statement and i i'd like you to articulate it in yeah. words because a lot of times people jump around the subject right. as to why so yeah. please tell me why yeah. in your eyes so i think i think um most americans think you know if you have white supremacist ideas you must have a swastika tattoo on your head or you know you're with a uh, out in the backwoods militia and that this so when when they saw these guys walking across a college campus and you know mainstream university of virginia campus with khakis and polo shirts it was a aesthetic shock, right? I mean, that's the kind of like people have a hard time recognizing the ideas, white people in particular have a hard time recognizing ideas as extreme if they don't come into in a package that, you know, if they come in a package that's more like the kid next door than the neo-Nazi of their imaginations. And so I think, you know, that's part of it is that there was this mainstreaming and normalization going on. And so you're seeing it seep into the mainstream at the same time as, we also had rising numbers of hate groups, you know, that that explosion started after Obama was elected. So you really see this dating back to reaction to the first African-American president getting elected and then the normalization and mainstream coming later. Um, so I think it's from the fringe into the mainstream, then the normalization and mainstreaming happens. We see it in Charlottesville and then we start seeing you know, real upticks in violence that finally drew the attention of people like Congress and Department of Homeland Security to finally issue a report just this year that finally says the most lethal threat facing the nation is from white supremacist extremists. So even if people knew it, you know, and then of course 9-11, right, is looming large in people's heads and, you know, the entire infrastructure that was built around it, including the Department of Homeland Security oh, itself, yeah. right, which was created in reaction to 9-11. So you have this entire infrastructure that's built and is telling stories to American people about the ways to keep them safe as being about foreign terrorists, you know, Islamist terrorists, like overseas in some place who are going to infiltrate and infect, you know, homegrown extremism, all the while, while homegrown extremists that are bubbling up, you know, from, a, from within this country are basically being not totally ignored, because I think you're right, the FBI has been doing you know, all along has been infiltrating these groups in ways that are, that is 
you know, often not acknowledged and that we rely on when you look at the number of foiled plots every single year. Um, and every year on the far right fringe, you know, back all the way back to 1949, um, the, you know, on average, the, the vast majority of far right extremist violence comes from the white supremacist fringe. So we know that, and that was true last year as well, even though the anti-government side is growing. But I think a lot of what we see happening is harder for people to recognize you know, getting back to that kind of package idea, if they, if they just, if it comes in a suit or it comes in a, you know, a clean uh, aesthetic package and not in the kind of, it couldn't be someone they know because they would, they would recognize it, right? Um, I think that's the part that's been um, more recently acknowledged. Let's look at uh, something like um, the, I think it was the Wisconsin legislature uh, being taken over by gun touting, AR-15 touting people and a Black Lives Matter uh, march outside. You ask a certain percentage, uh, there's, a, there's a, large, a, a, a large percentage of this population that looks at people in the Black Lives Matter as somehow a terrorist organization and somehow seeing people with guns in in the in these in these legislatures as okay uh yeah. what's the psychology what is the pathology i should say behind that thought process and and again in your studies as somebody who's actually studying this on the ground how do we fix that pathology because yeah. armed not armed uh, i mean how do you fix that well, some of it is, you know, political rhetoric that from not just elected officials, but law enforcement, local sheriffs, you know, who position those armed individuals, whether they're vigilantes or local militia groups as um, either as heroes, sometimes actually using language of heroes that valorize that, that valorize individual action coming into the streets in that way, particularly when they're there to protect the status quo, right? So some of these folks who come out to protect law enforcement or to um, sort of support, um, you know, uh, the local authorities. And then you have um, incendiary language against peaceful protesters, calling them riots, calling, um, you know, vigilante group calls for to come out and protect the city against evil thugs, right? So you have these kind of dog whistle racist ideas that come across that way as well. So I think some of it is the rhetoric that's out there that circulates that shapes the way that people think and the way that people are positioning it, the media coverage, depending on what, you know, it's, it's so politicized, right? This kind of like how you frame it. And then a lot of it is just sits in this idea about like these American ideas about freedom and tyranny and liberty and all the way that the anti-government fringe, the anti-government extremist fringe positions their, their arguments as about, um, you know, individual rights against some kind of oppressive regime. And somehow that, that, that language, right, when coming across from these militia groups, although you can have in the Black Lives Matter process also, you know, uh, protests against oppressive regimes, against oppressive law enforcement, against police brutality. And so, and some of these scenes, you, there should be commonalities. And in fact, we have seen that in a couple of the protests um, where some of the anti-government extremists have joined forces with the Black Lives Matter protesters. But in, in a lot more cases, you're seeing that framing end up as politicized as, you know, and framing the peaceful protesters as the problem rather than the ones carrying the massive, massive arms and threatening violence.
Two things. I want to say something real quick, and that is having to do with the media. We talk about how the media actually goes ahead and presents these issues. And I have a tendency to believe that the media is uh, more than anything else. The media is lazy uh, Mm -hmm. because uh, what what happens is you can uh, you can just look at the numbers. You can take you can look at numerical analysis and figure out that uh, this is where things are happening and that the media doesn't report that, I think that's a, that is a dereliction of duty. But if we, take a, if we go to Kenosha and we see the, the type of destruction and violence that occurred in Kenosha and what they're starting to find out now, I don't know if you did, if you've got the, the, the new info that showed that the person shooting at the police station was actually a right-wing extremist, the person yes. breaking glass, you know, um, you know it, yeah. there's a completely difference in who caused the destruction on the day of the destruction and what we find out later? Absolutely. How do we, how do we uh, get around those types of issues? Well, some of it, I think, is, is the, I mean, the media wants quick and, you know, not always and not all journalists to blame, mm-hmm. but a lot of media want quick and easy answers. They wanted to frame this in sort of terms that explain what's happening, right? And instead of waiting for actual investigations to come out that tell us. And so I think there is right now, seeing that this was, that the the armed you know uh, attack on a on the police precinct I think it was is coming out was from an, uh, a far right individual or a member of the Boogaloo or a, a, you know a, a, some boys, boys by yeah. these Boogaloo boys right um, you know when it was blamed on the protesters uh, you know I think is a really good example of how this happens and how these blind spots in, you know, in the media's coverage and the public's, and, you know, public's awareness about it have to be constantly kind of called out and, and, you know, by folks like you right here pointing out that, but also in kind of other conversations and media coverage of it to remind people, I don't know what the solution is with this kind of media landscape that wants very quick clickbait, you know, very quick um, driven, where there's not as much, you know, support for journalism, funding for journalism. So they're driven a lot by ad revenue and all the kinds of things that that brings in terms of how they have to. So I know there's a bigger landscape problem there and the way the media is motivated to report on stuff. Uh, but it, I, I agree with you. I think it's very problematic to have that the quick definitive things before the investigations come out. Now, what can you tell us about you? We, we brought up the Boogaloo Boys. Uh, you know, that that's an interesting name. What can you tell us about them and, and their position in the far right movement? The Boogaloo is a really interesting case because it is, uh, it's, I don't call it a movement either. It's really like an organizing or a mobilizing idea. And so it's something that has both, so it's a, it's a slang term, just for listeners who might not be aware, uh, that is a slang term that originated with a, you know, a teenage prank or joke online that was a term that came to mean the second of anything, basically. And it became, it eventually came to mean the second civil war. And, um, mo- you know, so it shows how stuff can migrate from online youth culture into offline violence. And it became embraced by these guys who use the term boogaloo to refer to second civil war or coming revolution, the idea of an overthrow of government, um, of a backlash against government tyranny. And it's both been organized into kind of groups and clusters of men who participate in boogaloo type um, groups and and actions, but also layered onto other groups. So you'll see these militia members in in Michigan, for example, in that plot to kidnap the governor, 
not all of them, but a couple of them were sort of affiliated with Boogaloo. And so it becomes like a hashtag that gets mm-hmm. layered on to other, literally a hashtag. Like, so they're like a member of whatever malicious hashtag Boogaloo also. So it's a, it's a way of adding a call to civil war or revolution onto, onto existing and threatening police at the same time. Um, now, if you noticed under when President Obama came into power, uh, the militia movement exploded. A lot of the white nationalists, uh, they felt, you know, the country is getting away from them. I don't know why, but I mean, yeah. that's what they thought. And, uh, and they came to pass. Now we have Donald Trump, who seems to be their, uh, their fewer. My question now is, which one was, a, which one caused a, a bigger build, build on these guys, Obama or Trump, because both has an influence, have an influence on it. Well, I think there's a couple things. I think what we saw is the explosion of hate groups launching, you know, really accelerating after Obama's elected. So it got to record levels. And then you have Trump's campaign rhetoric, the administration, and what that brought for the normalization and the mainstreaming of it. But on top of that, and the and the sort of perceived legitimation, right? The racist rhetoric, the incendiary rhetoric, the you know, polarizing rhetoric, all of that, that kind of helped mainstream and normalize and legitimate or perceived at least as legitimizing um, far right groups, they, who many of whom saw that as a call to action, uh, as we saw in the first debate this fall, for example. But it's also really important to note that globally, far right terror, right wing terror is up 320% over the last five years. So this is not just an American problem. And these guys are for the most part, you know, especially on the white supremacist fringe, extremely connected across borders, participating in an online ecosystem that is communicating that live streams attacks that shares, you know, bomb making materials that um, performs for each other. And you see that, you know, and I, I use the word perform intentionally because you see like in the last two far right extremist attacks in Germany, they either wrote their manifestos or, or live streamed in English, even though their native language is German. And so they were doing this not just as a you know white nationalist thing, but as a global white supremacist extremist attack. They really wanted this to be a global performance for others and to call others to action across borders. And so I think we have to understand what's happening in the States as part of that as well. It's, it's, part, it's definitely partly attributable to what's happening you know, with this administration, but I I also, the reason why I think that's important to understand is it's not like just one change of administration is going to get us out of this mess. Like this is a global, it's a global problem that needs global solutions and also something that is deeper and longer in the U.S. than just, you know, one, four year, five year span of time. Now, one scary thing to me is that um, uh, the, the, the social cancer of racism uh, we all thought would be mitigated by the debts of all the old people, all those old thoughts going away. You know, I mean, I remember one time my um, nephew, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you something, Tio. When you guys are all dead, things are then going to be okay. All right. That, that, that's what, and he didn't mean it uh, on a personal nature. He meant yeah. it that. When all the old, that old cancer is extricated, it'll be all gone. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing with these types of movement is young white men are so susceptible to it. And I want to throw the question in a different way, because 
is it that um, that all that the ascension that the ascension not the pulling down of anybody but the, the ascension of others is a good tool to use to make them believe there's a birthright they're losing that they never had yeah you raise a lot of really great points in this and so one i want to raise is that the you know the, the issue of generational change and so you know i think and you also in the very first phrase that you used, you said social cancer. And so I think, you know, this is a really important phrase. And it's one of the things I've been saying, even since before the pandemic. So it's a little bit, you know, hard to use this metaphor now. But I think for a long time, we as a society, meaning we in the US, but also globally, had thought of white supremacist extremists as a, as like a tumor or a few bad cells, whether they age out of you know, society or can be isolated, surveilled, monitored, imprisoned, cut out from society, as long as we kept them away from everybody else, right? It's like the isolated fringe. And I think that we have to think of it instead as more like a contagious virus which is, you know, yes. doesn't just die out, it resurges yes. and it comes back and it spreads online. And so it's not, it's not just a cancer that can be bounded, you know, with getting the bad cells out. It's something that does spread and it's, and it can spread in a new generation. And we're seeing that it spreads in this new generation um, online in really unusual ways and in different kinds of spaces than we'd seen before, which is what I talk about in this book, that you see it in the mixed martial arts, you see it in, um, you see it in, uh, you know, online cooking channels and YouTube shows, you see it in, in lifestyle. Help me out you know, here because so, you just yeah. scared me a bit. When you yeah. see your, when you just said you see it in martial arts and you see it in online cooking, you mean yeah. there, there are signs that they put even in those shows that, that, that you're, yeah, I mean, there are actual shows that are set up, not only like there's a German neo-Nazi vegan cooking show, right? They like, they are using that platform to both like share recipes with people and share ideology that's racist, wow. white supremacist, anti-immigrant. And you see that on Instagram with, you know, white supremacists, like very beautiful images that are always like aesthetically pleasing, I mean, that are like a blonde woman with a braid in a field of wheat, you know, like, right. and, you know, like, or with a deer in the woods or something, but that then have these messages actually explicitly written on them that, you know, or defend, defend your people or don't mix, right? Like, so these things that say like, basically like protect whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we're seeing that contagious spread, that, that online contagion, spread in different places and spaces, which is what I try to point out in this book as like understanding how it gets mainstreamed. I had a friend tell me recently that they were looking, um, they were trying to do a home improvement project during the pandemic and looked up um, drywall like videos and, you know, ended up on this guide who does drywall is like a sequence of 10 videos. And so starts watching them and by like video two or three realized the guy's starting to introduce white supremacist extremist ideas but he now he's in the middle of the project he needs to watch to the end so he gets all the way to the end and by the 10th video or whatever it's full-on white supremacist you know extremist ideology so they've got and you get something like that you have a captive audience of people who are encountering it coincidentally because they're looking you know for a diy project or whatever how to unplug a drain i mean whatever you could be looking up on youtube it's a space where suddenly they can reach in their ideas out and so wow. by finding places 
that young people already spend time, right? Um, and then and then getting recruiters or you know or just racists sharing their own ideology that way, right? It doesn't even have to be deliberate recruitment. Um, it it opens up a different way to spread that contagion. Do you think that the, I mean how is the, to me that almost seemed like it is pretty well financed and pretty well organized. Uh, do we have you been able to find the head of the structure, or is it sort of a, um, a net? Is it a network based or hierarchically based or what? Yeah, there are a lot of different groups doing this. I think, and so there are, you know, groups themselves do. They they raise money in all different ways. They sell merchandise. They crowdsource online for activities and actions. Um, they take donations. Sometimes they use inheritances or like wealthy, you know, uh, money that they've raised or earned themselves. Um, but I think I think most of this is not happening through groups, and that's I think why it's so hard for authorities and policymakers to understand it when they are pivoting from trying to understand the terrorist fringe from an Islamist extremist perspective, which is a much more hierarchical and group-based type of um, terrorist organization. When you look at the white supremacist extremist fringe, a lot of what happens is kind of radicalization through what we call kind of like self-radicalizing networks. People who spend time in toxic spaces online share dehumanizing racist memes, let's say misogynistic memes, and they get drawn into something that doesn't really have a head, right? Doesn't have a hierarchy, isn't that organized in a cell or a group. And so eventually then if they get radicalized far enough might start planning or plotting violence, but they're, that's why we have these kind of lone actors enacting violence with no particular ties. And that's different than, you know, it's harder for, for authorities to wrap their heads around how to manage extremism if you're looking at it from the top down. And one of the things I argue in this book is you know, we've been approaching it as like a top-down problem. What's the organization? What are the structures? How do they communicate, right? The way that the typical terrorism, you know, infrastructure mm -hmm. has been understood. Or we study from the bottom up. How are people radicalizing in their heads? What are the vulnerabilities, isolation, or, you know, anxiety, or perceived precarity, or, you know, um, uh, all the things that might create more vulnerabilities to white supremacist propaganda? But what I argue in the book is if you ask a different set of questions about where extremism happens by looking at these spaces and places where people encounter these ideas in the mainstream, even though they're fringe extremist ideas, then we can start to understand a sort of different way of, of maybe attacking it or approaching it by intervening in those places and spaces and working with experts in those, in those like college counselors or mixed martial arts trainers or, you know, folks who understand what's going on in those scenes to begin with. Now, in closing, I want to ask you to um, talk to me a little bit about COVID-19 and the influence on uh, that and white supremacy. And the last question is, please tell me something you wish I'd asked you. And I simply <laughs> yeah. didn't. So I just gave okay. you a twofer. Good, good. So the first thing is on COVID, yeah, we've seen a couple of different things. One is that... Um, Obviously, there's a lot more mobilization on the anti-government extremist fringe. It's been really obvious, and I think a lot of the attention on the far right has been on the anti-government side, um, which has its intersections with white supremacist extremism, but is also separate and in, in other ways because it's not always as, as explicit as it is in the white supremacist extremist fringe. 
Um, and so we've seen mobilization on the anti-government side. We've seen increased circulation of propaganda. Um, you know, a lot of anti-Asian violence, a lot of anti-Semitic um, hate crimes and conspiracy theories, rising conspiracy theory participation in general on the far right fringe. And then also, you know, more vulnerabilities, like I was talking about before, the extreme isolation, lack of sense of control, um, lack of belonging or meaningful purpose, perceived precarity, which I think is different than actual precarity, but this mm -hmm. idea that, you know, uh, of economic uncertainty, all of those things create vulnerabilities to rhetoric that offer scapegoats, that offers a very black and white solution to things. And so we know that it's kind of a perfect storm of, you know, increased propaganda meeting increased um, vulnerabilities, along with astronomical and unprecedented amounts of time online. So we just have, you know, 100 million young people across, you know, K to 12 and college students, plus those who are not in college at home, you know, online all the time uh, in ways that increase the chance of both child exploitation, but also, you know, exposure to propaganda and misinformation. So all of that is, um, you know, not great and can, can lead to um, more radicalization down the line. In terms of what I wish you'd ask that you didn't um, is, uh, I feel like one thing that doesn't often come up in these conversations that is starting to come up more often is the intersection of far-right extremism with misogyny and the mm -hmm. kind of male supremacist side of things. And, and I think for many years, um, a lot of those incel, those voluntary incelibate attacks or male supremacist attacks on women had been seen as, you know, just guys with sort of personality problems, mm -hmm. couldn't get a date or couldn't have sex or whatever. And they were lashing out and killing women in a sorority or in a yoga studio or a van attack in Toronto, you know, which have led to a lot of deaths. And, um, and I think recently there's finally a realization that the logic of male supremacy is not that different from the logic of other forms of supremacy, white supremacy, these hierarchies and the dehumanization and the attacks and the anger, and that there are also intersections. When you look at why it is that it's men engaging and men enacting in these violent ways, I think, I hope that the coming years bring more attention to this intersection of misogyny. Why is it that the language used against that Michigan governor was so misogynistic, right? Um, when you look at the criminal complaint, I think there, it's not coincidence, right? And so um, we see that the attack on a judge in New Jersey on her family or the murder of Joe Cox in the UK by a right-wing extremist that you know women are targets in different ways on these kinds of things, but also that there's these intersections between uh, domestic violence, violence against women and gender-based violence and, and white supremacist extremism in ways that I think haven't really been in, untangled enough. I think, and because because you brought up that issue, I want thirty seconds more of your time because yes. to, to ask you about my response to somebody today uh, on, on on a similar issue, and I want you to tell me uh, if if I if you think I got it right. I yeah. a friend of mine wrote on Facebook all the male Trump supporters I know like Trump like Trump because they get turned on by an abusive alpha male. He resembles what they desire. I would never. Uh, date a MAGA for safety concerns. And my response was, women have the power to force uh, that, but in my humble opinion, they acquiesce to the patriarchy in the church and politically. On my show, I point out that slavery and oppression no longer requires chains, and it is now inculcated in one's mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that something that you can agree with or... Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think, I think if I understand what you're saying, it's that the, 
the the requirement for all each and every one of us is to challenge kind of the the ways that we may be complicit, you know, in any structures of supremacy, including, mm -hmm. you know, um, including me as a white person, what are the ways that I, you know, despite trying to fight white supremacist extremism might, might be missing something or might be overlooking something? What are my blind spots? And the ways that men working in these spaces trying to fight it might be overlooking some of the intersections between male supremacy and white supremacy or domestic violence and misogyny or, you know, um, the, the kind of role of toxic masculinity in attracting people into these kinds of uh, macho, you know, um, valorization of violence and chest puffery that we see and what your friend was talking about. So yes, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's a constant need to be reflective, to be humble, and to be aware that, that there are always going to be intersections that we may not be paying sufficient attention to at any given time. Dr. Cynthia Miller, author of Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. Thank you so kindly for having Thank been you. on Politics Done Right. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. I enjoyed speaking to her. I think we did that a, f a few days ago. Now, here's, here's the thing about it. Um, it, it behooves me that so many uh, will still make the comment that racism doesn't exist, etc. So I'm going to answer Daniel Ledo about that in a minute. And folks, you know, you know, I I, I am very my I have a true my family, my entire family is the it's the real American family. We have people of every ethnicity and when we have our christmas dinners etc it, it, it is it is quite obvious okay so um so we know what it's what what it's like and and even all the people within our domain have stories to tell you both the white ones the black ones the indian ones the of every nationality that we have can tell you stories of what they've heard or, or things within our community but beforehand I don't want to forget this, so uh, let's let's remember my book. It's worth it. And yes, Daniel, I I believe that we are supposed to uh, try to for me to sustain the program. I do have to ask the people who watch the program, the people who share the program, to support the program. I am not ashamed of doing that because again, this is all I do, and sixteen hours a day. So anyhow, folks, please, uh, it's worth it. Is my new book. About three months old now. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors. You can get it at the link that I've just placed inside of the feed. Uh, that's the Amazon link for the feed. But I want to ask all of my YouTube family, that people that are watching YouTube, if you can, please click that Join button and become a part of the posse. Bridge MCP always say, we are the posse. So, yeah, please go ahead and join our posse. Click that Join button and join the posse, I would be uh, kindly indebted to you. Likewise, you can click that dollar sign to say, yeah, let's give Egberto uh, and Politics Unright a super chat. Alternatively, you can go ahead. And, and by the way, on our YouTube channel, there's a whole lot of things that we have. Our mask, our, our books, our, our cups, all that good stuff you can buy directly there on YouTube. Or you can go to our store. Any books that you purchase directly from our store, which is at this link here, politicsunright.com slash store, politicsunright.com slash store. I will sign the book and send you a bumper sticker inside of the book with the book if you purchase it directly from us. If you happen to have purchased the book from Amazon or whatever, and so, ah, dang, I really want to have a bumper sticker, just drop me a line, info at politicsandright.com with your, with your uh, mailing address, and I'll put one in the mail for you. I'll put a bumper sticker in the mail for you. So 
I, I don't want anybody to feel like somehow left out or whatever. But again, if you are on YouTube, please click join. If you're not on YouTube, you can still join our YouTube posse by going to this link, which is politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Again, that is politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. And that way you can join our posse on YouTube as well. Don't forget, we also want Patreons. Patreons are people that ha- are, are more vested as well. You know, they, they, all of you are vested, but you know what I mean. Uh, you can go to politicsunright.com slash patron. Patron is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Again, that is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, politicsunright.com slash patron. And there is always going to be PayPal. Politicsunright.com slash PayPal is the way you support us via PayPal. Let me go through some of the I, – I, I want to – before I go to the topic, that the other topic, I think I want to talk to people because it makes more sense that I can talk, cover the topic any other time because there's a lot of messages in here. So what I'm going to do is salute everybody in the room. And as I salute you, uh, if there's something that I need to answer or talk about with, with what you've written, I'll talk about it. So, okay, we have – Michael Rudnan, what do you think is going to happen with the Senate? Republicans have 52 more seats to be called. I think if we, uh, if we unite, if we unite and forget our grievances until after uh, Georgia, because our grievances will not be, our grievances won't matter unless we get those two Senate, uh, Senate positions in Georgia. So what I tell all of my brothers and my sisters, let's love on each other. Let's help those folks in Georgia. Let's let those people in Georgia tell us how best to help them for their situation. Let's not run into Georgia and start doing things in the hope of helping them. Let them run. Let Stacey Abrams, let's John Ossoff, let's, uh, I forgot the other guy's name, the reverend that's running. Let them decide how best they know we can help them. And that way, that is what you call, you know, an, an ally. That It's their job. We are an allies. Learn, let's learn how to be allies and let them dictate the direction that they need to go in. Paul Fleming, welcome aboard from ATL. Bruce Pollard, Mitch will continue to rule the world. We are going to stop that. We must stop that, Bruce. So like I said, let's make sure they dictate. Hope Bleeker, welcome aboard. EV car stocks up. The market knows who the president is, of course. And, you know, that, that is the future. It is the future. Paul Fleming, the ATL, will bring it home for the country again, taking the two seats. Paul, you are from Georgia. You please let, let our family right here know what we can do, our little show, what we can do as far as helping in Georgia to do our little part. It's you providing direction to us based on what you know from Georgia, sir. Bridge MCP, hello. AVQ, hello. Pamela Matax, hello. Lee Grant, hello. Uh, Hope Bleeker says, let's get it done. Then let's ring bells of inauguration. Rock on. I love that Hope Hope, your name is Hope. You inspire hope as well. Michael Rundin, there's a parallel. Eh, I'll hear you out. Yes, brother. Norman Reynolds says, hey, he's surviving. Paul Fleming, extremism in this country has never gone away. Trump made this uh, white America feel so great again that they let the world see the lie that's been told. Well, let a section of white America. Our audience right here, take a look at it. It's mostly white. And these are damn good people trying to make a difference, saying we don't want to go back into our flayed past. We don't want to go into that past where we didn't recognize hu- the humanity of all. So please, uh, I, 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 read, I read that. 
we, we, we must be concerned of this, the part of white America that Trump made feel something better. And then we, and uh, uh, people get mad at me when I say this, but I honestly mean this from the depths of my heart. We have, to, look, there is a section of America, and it's not only racism. There is a strong degree of racism. I won't, I'm not naive. I won't doubt that. A lot of my white friends in their own circles would come back and tell me, Egberto, I remember one of them told me, Egberto, you just don't know how bad racism is. And I, I'll tell them all the time, yes, I do. But I understand also racism is taught. Racism is a tool. I understand all of that. But the thing about it is why you have 41% of white Americans uh, are just fine. I'm not saying – look, within that 41% of Americans, are they racist? Yes, but they are people trying to be better. Of that 60-something percent of of white Americans that voted for Trump, 50-something percent, are they all racist? No. And and are all the 41% pure? And not so. What I'm saying is, we have to look at it from we have to look at it from a holistic point of view. And when we see that, we can look at it from a human from that human standard, which is what I try to. A lot of people think I'm running from a position of naivete. It's from a position of humanity, because if you once believe that all humans are the same, which I do believe, humanity is humanity is humanity. There are certain, uh, you know. That you have different pigments is like that you have a big nose, that you have a blonde hair or black hair, brunette or coarse hair, whatever. Those are characteristics that doesn't, doesn't define humanity. And once you start to look at it from that point of view, then it doesn't matter if it's somebody who's calling you the N-word. My, you know, a lot of people used to do that, right? And I'll turn back around and say, exactly what are you getting out of that? Please tell me what it is. After you have called me the N-word, how do you feel? Why is it that calling me the N-word presents something in you that makes you feel better? Tell me what it is. I would like to understand that, right? And when you get into that sort of discussion with people, you would not imagine. Not, not, I'm not saying the, the majority, but I'm saying a lot of people give a second thought and like, my God, who the hell am I? It's like the person who called up on the show one time and started saying, N-word, 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 N-word. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I had a conversation with them, and then I had a private conversation with them. And that person wrote back and said, oh, my God, I am sorry. I'm not, you know, it, it wasn't about the N-word. It was a lot deeper than the N-word. It, it was about that necessity that your condition lays out that the only way you can tolerate your condition is that if you know somebody else is just not up to par, you're not your par. It, it, it's, it's simple yet complex. Um, now, let me continue. Michael Rudnan, welcome aboard. Paul Fleming, welcome aboard. Um, William Asburn, welcome aboard. Let's see. Michael Rudnan again. Uh, let me continue going down. Daniel Ledo says, the boogaloo is coming soon. Now, I want to ask. What what was the intent of that message? The Boogaloo is coming soon. We know who the Boogaloo boys are. You know, racist, violent type of guys. What is it in it? If you are a peaceful human being, by saying the Boogaloo boys is coming, what does it do for you? What does it do what does it what does it do for America if you claim you love America so much and we want peace in America? Paul Fleming, the answer to the question lies with the smaller group. Older white group 
uh, come to the realization that we are not going to back, we are not going back to yesteryear, that black Americans don't want revenge. Yeah, you know, it, it, is, it is funny, right? Black America has the right if they wanted revenge. This entire capitalist structure would be non-existent without the free labor they provided. Without the free labor, with, without the, the, the attacks on the Indians and the taking of their, not only their resources, but a lot of what they've developed intellectually. On the Chinese that have built the, the railroad. I mean, there are a lot of people with grievances that if they weren't humane and believe that, that simply going for revenge is not what's the answer, we would be in a whole lot of pain right now. The good thing for the majority population in America is that all of those that have been aggrieved, not out of weakness, but out of inherent humanity, they haven't seeked in majority outright revenge. Suppose people were seeking revenge for being skinned alive. Suppose people were seeking revenge for having their balls cut off while they were alive. Suppose people were seeking revenge for having been boiled. Suppose people were seeking revenge for having been whipped. Suppose people were seeking revenge for having been redlined and not being able to accumulate the wealth that others were able to accumulate doing the same job. Suppose people were really seeking revenge, if not just if not just equity. Think about that. If people were seeking revenge, America would be no more. And for that population, and that is the danger of those that we call Republican leaders today. By inciting all these people to believe that somehow someone is taking their birthright, something they've never had, something that a small group of people, mostly who look like those who want this uh, boogaloo thing, are the ones who've screwed you. The people who have taken your birthright looks nothing like me. Looks nothing like Norman. Looks nothing like somebody named Pereira. Looks nothing like somebody named uh, Wing or Wan or Chang or anything like that. Those are not the people that have taken your birthright. Those are not the people that created the drugs that is decimating the people in the Midwest. Those are not the people that sell that that went ahead and turned the drug industry into an industry that enriched a very few. They never did that. All the people that are causing your pain mostly don't look like any of us. And the thing about it is what I have, what I have always hated with messaging from, let's say, the Democrats, the new Democrats, because Daniel Ledo can always come back and say, remember, the KKK used to be Democrat. That's true. Now they're Republican. They changed parties after the, after the Civil Rights Act. So we have to know our history. One of the things that we know is that history is not taught in this country for a particular reason. Read the Powell Manifesto and you understand what the reason is that we don't teach history. We don't because if, 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 the, if my brothers and sisters in Appalachia, my white brothers and sisters in Appalachia actually understood history, the coalitions that was forming, look out what, what redneck really stood for. I had this, this, this woman that uh, I teamed up with back in uh, 
Arizona, not Arizona. I think we were in uh, in Raleigh. We were in Delaware. We were in Delaware. We were in, in Delaware at a conference. And she taught me all I needed to know about rednecks. Because redneck was a whole group of, uh, was a movement that, coal- that coalesced around uh, move- people working, all these races working together. The, the, it was a job movement, labor movement. And a lot of people don't understand all these things, right? Nobody wants you to know these things because they want you to believe somebody's taking your birthright. That's what it's all about. Mark Smith from London, welcome aboard. Michael Rudnin again. Daniel Ledo. Folks like Egberto and Cynthia don't even realize the boogaloo is coming because they insist in labeling millions racist. No, the boogaloo, uh, whatever they do, they do because they are, in fact, racist. And I'm not calling my brothers and sisters in Appalachia who have racist intents and intent tendencies racist for the sake of calling them racist. I won't do that. I know that they are misled. I know what's going on in this country. And if I fall into the trap and go about hating them like everybody wants to hate these people and all of that, that is exactly what the plutocracy wants. That is what they want. They want all of us to be in such disarray that they just look from above and run this whole thing because they don't have to fight anybody. We're all fighting each other. Uh, Lee Grant says we should outlaw all just the positions of bacon and, and right-wing ideas. I'm not sure what that is. YouTube will recommend people far right. Uh, Facebook will recommend far right groups. Social media does have a real program. It does have a real program, but what it is mostly, it's not something that, let's say, they are doing purposefully. Well, to get away from Trump, they did try to give right wing information easier play because it was so bad it was not getting any play. And they ease up on their guidelines to let that go. Read, there's an, there a couple of articles that I read about it. Anyhow, welcome Tony Owen. Welcome aboard. Christine Park. Gonna go back and listen from the beginning. Thank you, Christine. Daniel Ledo says, Hmm, Egberto sells merchandise. Does that make him a racist? It certainly makes him a capitalist, which he has taught us means he is evil. Uh, you sure haven't listened to enough of my programs to understand the dif- differentiation between capitalism and free enterprise with a strong social safety net. If you haven't, just look social strong social safety net in my programs, and you can get enlightened, my brother. Paul Fleming says, first things first. White America started the labeling business. Black Americans didn't create the N-word, didn't call ourselves stupid, and definitely didn't call ourselves lazy. That's very true. Tank 28 says, is Clarence Thomas black Egberto? Yes, he's black. So what? Okay. Bridge MCP, I think they are just ignorant to organize. I won't say stupid. <laughs> okay, Bridge. Daniel Ledo says, no white person has said the N-word since 1969. Huh? What? You heard that? No. <laughs> You've got to be kidding, Daniel. Uh, when I came to America in 1979, I got my blessing in Brenham, Texas, walking down the streets. I spoke about it in my book. I would love to remember what the section in the book it was. My welcome into uh, it, I, 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 to, I, I, I revealed that experience in my book as far as my my blessing into Brenham, Texas. Okay, uh, Tony Owen says, "How many white nationalists are in cells?" <laughs> Lee, Lee Grant sounds like she prefers Islamic terrorists over domestic terrorism. 
No, we don't like terrorism, period. Right now, most of what's afflicting America is, in fact, white terrorism. It's called uh, white, what? It's white supremacist terrorism. That's what we have. Left, leftism has its intersection with communism. I don't even think you could properly define communism. Uh, but what most of the people like, most people around the world in both uh, uh, free enterprise countries and otherwise is democratic socialism. Uh, the fact that we have been that we have un- allowed others to hijack the word makes it more difficult for us, which means we have to be more nimble in the way we explain these things. Maybe sometimes not even using the word. Anyhow, Nanette Bird Smith, it would seem if we lived the motto of walk in my, a mile in my shoe, the separatism would start bleeding instead of repelling. Yeah, it does work. Look, let me tell you, you can drop me into the most um, white area, white racist area, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I will get out there, get out of there with a whole lot of good friends. And the reason why, it it, it would actually start with listening, right? And actually letting that other person see uh, a lot of these issues. Now, it won't be all. I'm not a fool. It won't be all. I'm not a fool. But, you know, it's, it's not something that I have not done. It's not something that I have not done. Uh, it, it was funny because once I was uh, uh, one of those friends who was a part of a militia in Waco. After he spoke to me, he wanted to take me to uh, his group. And he wanted me to talk to the people in, in this militia in Waco. And I said, sure, I'd do it. No problem at all. And because he was one of them, right? And then we, we were together. We're good friends. We're still good friends, you know. And he said, Egberto, come on and, you know, let, let's go. I want you to talk to these guys. And I was going to go with them. You know, these guys with the AR, I think it was AK-40. I don't think it was AR, these guys. And my wife said, you're absolutely not going. And I'm like, I'm going. She says, you're absolutely not going. Um, and, you know, she just put her foot down. But I was going. And look, you know, uh, anyway, let me move on. Paul Fleming says, when I started to work in 1989, I was called one again. Then I, I, I fired a worker, so you don't have the authority on when racism has ended because that's something you haven't lived real true. What? Uh, whoa, we're running out of time. I, I, I took all of the time on this. Daniel Edo says, uh, it has been unacceptable for whites to utter the word for 40 years. One-offs do not prove a rule. Daniel Edo, I was harassed and cursed. This is uh, normal Reynolds. I was harassed and cursed using the N-word, uh, w- one of the most cosmopolitan locations in Houston. You're 1969. Yeah, I, I mean, he can't. Be, he could not possibly believe that, Norman. He possibly could not possibly. Breach uh, N word is used a lot. I know breach. So are the words used for gays. Exactly. Even the expression "it's so gay" was offensive. I had to learn that, breach. I had to learn that. Uh, great interview. Thank you for liking it, breach. Okay, coming down, snowflakes. I gotta run down this real smart, real, real fast. Let's see. Uh, Nanette Bird says, niece in Georgia. Great, Nanette. You tell us how we can help. Replying to Norman says, snowflakes like you could not put up with the things I and my ancestors have endured at the hand of your kin. Your assumptions without knowing anything more about the incident. I get the point, Norman, and I think everybody gets the point. Uh, thank you for that. Paul Fleming, donate, donate, donate. I am going to send a few, a few pennies to, uh, to, to Georgia as well. Michael Rodnin, uh, how many are racist? Maybe a fourth. Seven, two million Trump votes. How many are racist? Maybe a fourth. The rest don't care that they've allied with racists to them. Racism isn't a deal breaker. 
You know something, Rudnan? That's a good good way of putting it. I don't know what the percentage is. My percentage was more like 33% or a little bit higher. But that's academic. It doesn't really matter, right? Daniel Ado says, Egberto, uh, tell me what is it, what makes you feel better to call millions of Americans racist? Uh, what do you mean? I'm just defining what is true. You know, when I was a homophobe and somebody called me a homophobe, I accepted it. And I learned that it was a long time ago, 20-something years ago, when I went to China in a business trip, that I actually made the flip. And I explained that in the book as well. I'm not looking for a pat on the back. I grew up. I grew up. I learned. I allowed myself to expand. Uh, Lee Grant, history is just too impure for Egberto. History is impure, um, Lee. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. I'm moving on, moving on, moving on. I got to get out of here, guys. I got to get out of here. Got to get out of here. Egberto, Facebook knew its algorithm made people turn against each other. Stop reading. Yeah, you're right, Rudnan. Egberto, yes, that was a joke, replied to Daniel. <laughs> they still want to put Tarzan in the jungles. Yeah, I know. It's funny, right? Okay, wow. You guys really, maybe you could recommend the group with the biggest bang for the buck in Georgia. I'll find that out for you. Last message from Daniel Edo. I love how they only define something as offensive. It offends leftists. For your information, Egberto offends me mostly daily, but my offense is fake. Uh, it has to be because I don't say anything. I'd like you to tell me what specifically that I've said that offended you. And if I need to apologize, I would be the first to do it on air to tell folks I have wronged Daniel Ledo. I have done wrong to Daniel Ledo. Folks, please don't forget if you're on YouTube, please click that join button, become a member. Uh, please consider cons getting our new book. The book is called It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. And as well, please consider joining our YouTube by going to politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube, politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. And, of course, there is PayPal to support our program. We do need your support. We do need your support badly. Politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal. My name is... Egberto Willies. This is Politics Done Right. I love you all. When I say that, I mean that. Even those that attack me constantly, because my expectation always is going to be eventually something here is going to let leave a, a seed in the brain. Something here is going to leave a seed where you can see humanity over anything and everything else. I honestly believe that is the genetics, that is a migrated genetics of humanity. As we have societized, I think that is the genetics of humanity. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.